You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. Welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. My name is Randy Bolander, and we are putting out the podcast early on a Monday morning because it's a crazy busy week. Tomorrow, 222, we have the Theater of Dreams with Lou Engle on the campus of Mid-America Nazarene University. Super excited about that. Looking forward to seeing a lot of dear friends. Hope to see some of you there. As well as, wow, yesterday was just fun. Sunday morning, probably the most fun Sunday maybe that I remember at the bridge. Just a lot of moving parts, had our kids involved, uh, kids helping lead worship. Um, heard from a number of people, celebrated uh, Leif Agutu, who is going to state as a wrestler. First girl from her high school and a big school, Blue Valley, first girl to qualify for state. And so we celebrated her crowd was raucous um and it was just a fun time also finished up our fifth in a series of five messages on first john did it in five weeks when they said i couldn't do it so there you go skipped a bunch that's how i did it anyway here you go enjoy if you have your bibles turn with me to first john chapter five as we finish out our series in the prescribed five weeks that I told you I would, it's a time to make history, isn't it? Never before have I announced the length of a series and been right from the beginning. It's never happened. Uh, got a lot to say, and uh, we've done a lot this morning. Uh, we're not going to go late, which means I'm going to go kind of quickly. Somebody asked me one time years ago, uh, you talk too fast when you preach. Can you talk slower? I said, yeah, but I'll preach longer. Because it's just, I mean, you, just, you can have it fast or you can have it slow, but it, you're going to get it all. So uh, you're going to get it all this morning, at least all of the beginning of 1 John chapter 5. What choices made you what you are? You might think of one or two that are major choices, but really there are hundreds of choices along the way of life that made you what you are. And a lot of them, when you made them, you did not even realize you were making a life charting choice, Right. And you might get results that you did not anticipate. You make a choice thinking it's between X and, and Y and you get L. You didn't realize that was a part of it. Some of you chose a school and what you didn't realize what you're really doing was choosing friends. Some of you chose a cheeseburger. But you didn't really know you were choosing more than a cheeseburger. Okay, there's other ramifications that go with our choices. Fall of my sophomore year of, of Bible college, I decided to do an unusual thing. I was going to move schools at Christmas time. I didn't know people didn't do that. And so between my fall and spring semester, I loaded my entire dorm room up and uh, I moved to another school a thousand miles away. Spring semester showed up someplace else. And I made that choice not really knowing what all that would mean for me. I, I, later, I look back and I realize that I now know twice as many people as I normally would have, but I only know them about half as well. And so it changed the experience based on that one little decision. The frustrating thing is you make so many of these decisions between 18 and 22, you know, that chart the course of, of your life. You're probably least qualified to make decisions in that season, and you're making them right and left, and you have to live with them the rest of your days. We expect the decisions that will affect us the most will be really dramatic, and there'll be theme music, and maybe if we have hair, there'll be wind blowing through it. And the truth is, most of these decisions are really just minute, kind of boring in the moment. And then 30 years later, you look back and go, huh, 
I did not know when I chose that I would get this. John 5, 1 John 5, talks about a decision. A contrast, really, that comes with a lifetime of ramifications. And it is the ultimate in what I call an if-then statement. Okay, you understand the idea of if-then? If this happens, then this happens. It's a way of writing computer code or writing an Excel spreadsheet for those of you who do such voodoo. You know, if cell whatever is greater than whatever, da, 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 da. I hadn't done this for years. And then we lost our Yahtzee pad that kept our, our, our tracks. So I had to, had to do a Yahtzee scorecard in, in, uh, in Excel, uh, which I'm very proud of, by the way, because it actually works. But it's, you know, if you score this much, then you get this much, and if then. Or it's a way of encouraging children. If your room is clean in the morning, there will be ice cream on the way home from school. If your room is not clean, only dad will have it. No, you know, it's a, it's a way of, of deciding what happens. It's a way of threatening. If then, if I don't get my way, then X, Y, Z will happen. First John 5 talks about an if then that pays really long dividends in our life. Longer than any other decision we'll make. And this is what it is. If you believe, then. If belief, then the, all these other things. We've become remarkably comfortable, particularly in the last couple of years, with observing, okay? Just observing. I, I see a typo in Jesus. That's what's supposed to be Jesus. It's actually in the original language. It's not spelled that way either. I goofed it up. But we've become remarkably comfortable with observing in the last couple of years. Too many people are trying to balance a life of belief with inaction, but there is an if-then that goes with belief that we've got to follow. And John draws that contrast in chapter 5. Before we get to the text, just want to understand the grace that Jesus has for those of you who struggle with belief. You want to believe, but you struggle. There's a story about a boy with an unclean spirit. He's actually possessed by a demon. And don't let your rational mind check out now and say that was only for then, not for now. Last week I said there are spiritual forces at work that we don't always see. I'm not the guy that you know, sees a demon behind every tree, but that may be more of my problem with sight than it is the fact that there are none there. Like those things are real. Some of you wonder, well, why don't we see these things today? In many parts of the world, they do see these things today. And in our part of the world, sometimes we make excuses for behavior when really it's actually something demonic that's going on. When I was 20, I was doing an internship in northern Iowa. And they brought me in to work with the youth group for the summer. There was a couple there that had worked for the youth group for, you worked with the youth group for years, and for whatever reason, they thought I could come in and know something, which was totally not true. And at 20, I came in to kind of help with the youth group, and I lived with this family who had run the youth group for years. And one night, we're all headed to bed, and we hear this large clatter, and I look out, and a carload of teenagers has jumped the curb and landed in the side yard. They just, it was like out of a movie, man. They just launched the car into the yard, and they're parked over the sidewalk that comes out of the side of the, of the house to the street, and they're piling out of them, this thing like clowns coming out of the circus car. And so the man of the house and I, we run down, and four kids have gotten out of the car, and they are freaked out. And they're telling us, uh, our friend Jimmy, he's in the back seat and he's, he's freaking out and he's talking in a different voice and he's trying to tell us what to do. And I looked at Brian and I, I didn't know what to do. And he, Brian goes, I know this kid. I think he's demon possessed. He said, Randy, this is what I want you to do. Take the other four kids and go stand over in that part of the yard. 
which was about all I was qualified to do. Like, I was so relieved that that was his instruction to me at that point. So we, I take these kids over, and we start praying for this kid. Kid gets out, and he's stumbling around, and he is literally speaking with a voice that is not his. I can hear him. And as we begin to plead the blood of Jesus over this situation, this kid suddenly runs towards us and stops. And this voice comes out, who are you talking to? I mean, there, you know, a little demonic activity is actually very good for a prayer meeting. Like, it gets really sincere when the other voices start coming out. And so we start praying for this kid, and Brian comes over, lays hands on him, casts this evil spirit out of him. Kid slumps to the floor, gets up dazed and confused, speaking in his own voice. Brian leads him to Jesus, at which point he was very open, you know. He'd had another spirit in there. He was really glad to get Jesus, and we sent him on their way. These kind of things still do happen. And that was the situation that we find here in this story where this kid is demon-possessed. The Bible says he's throwing himself into the fire. And the father is just distraught over this. If you have ever had a child that was incredibly sick, I don't mean, you know, fever of 99.5, trying not to go to school. I mean really sick, where you're racing to the emergency room. That's what this father is going through. That's the scene in Mark 9. And the young boy is convulsing, and his father brings him to Jesus, and he tells Jesus, if you could do anything, have compassion on us. Jesus is... If I can do anything? If? And then he lays out the most life-changing if-then that has ever been laid out. He says, all things are possible for the one who believes. It's like, you believe, it opens all kinds of doors. If you believe, all things are possible. There's that contrast. Do I believe or do I have unbelief? And a lot is about to hinge based on this guy's answer. And the guy, you can almost hear his voice warbling a little bit. In Mark 9, 24, immediately the father of the child cried out, and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. He's like, yeah, but I'm strong. I believe, but can you help me? What does Jesus do when your yes looks like that? What does he do when you're like, I believe, but I, I want to fast, but I want to, yeah, help. That weak yes is enough to move his heart. He runs with it. He's already said, faith like a mustard seed is enough. Even belief, and you're saying, oh, I'm struggling. He responds to that, and he heals the boy. So going to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to look at some if-then ideas out of 1 John. If we believe, then what? 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. If belief, then love. If belief, then love. John, the disciple that Jesus loved, works hard to integrate this idea of loving with believing Jesus. He talks about it over and over and over again. It's almost as if John suspected that there would be people who profess Jesus but do not profess love. It's almost like he was looking down the road going, there's going to come a day when they're going to talk about me, but they're not going to love me, or they're not going to love one another. John uses a phrase, born of God, over and over and over again in his writings. In chapter 2 of 1 John, he talks about those who are born of God and how they will practice righteousness. In chapter 3, he talks about those who are born of God and how they will refrain from sin. But in chapter 5, he talks about how you get that way. How are you born of God? He said, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. 
Remember, in the series, we've been focusing on the writings of John, and John has been writing about being born of God for a long time. He uses the phrase over and over in the Gospels and in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In John 3, Nicodemus approaches Jesus. He comes to him at night because he doesn't want anybody to know. It's kind of like how some of you guys swing by Taco Bell, okay? Late at night, and the kids are in bed, and it's just, eh, I just did that last week. But anyway, Nicodemus comes to him at night, and he's testing the waters. As a religious leader, he tells him, Jesus, you must be from God because if you weren't, we wouldn't know how to explain all of these miracles. He says, how do you do these things? How, how do you get to be who you are? And in John 3, John begins, or Jesus begins to speak to him about what it means to be born of God. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, who is a literalist here, says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's like, Jesus, what are you talking about? I'm not even going to bring this up with my mother. Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So in the Gospels, Jesus tells Nicodemus, oh, you've got to be born again, but he never really particularly explains how that happens. And I think Nicodemus still walks away going, i got to go talk to my mom. Like, I don't know how this works. Later in 1 John 3, John gives us the process. He says, if you believe... You are born of God. Belief is what gets you that way, to be born of God. And as hard as belief can be, it is arguably easier than what follows belief. Following Jesus is like raising a family. It's not the initial investment. It's the long-term upkeep that's going to cost you. Some of you know young couples that, you know, are thinking about having kids, but they're like, oh, you know, it could cost up to $5,000. And those of you that are parents are going, <laughs> it's going to cost you $5,000 in chunks for the rest of your life. It's not the initial investment. It's the long-term upkeep that's expensive. So it is with following Jesus. You thought belief was hard. Belief's the easy part. It ratchets up from there. People tell stories about how hard it was for them to believe. What they, oh, I brought everything to the altar. Like, what did you bring? couple of bad habits, some untold stories, and a half a six-pack of PBR. Like, what did you bring to the altar when you gave it all to Jesus? It is the ongoing upkeep or the maintenance fees of belief that ratchet up. And he says, those who believe God will love God, which makes some element of sense. You're grateful. But then he goes on to say, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Suddenly, the pool of people that you're supposed to love just got really broad. In other words, your heart is now connected to everyone else who claims faith in the world. He does not write exemptions for people who get your pet theological arguments wrong. He does not write exemptions for the chronically childish in your life. He says, if they believe and if you believe, guess what? You will love them. If belief, then love. And here's the stickler. Some of those people are crazy. Some of those people who love Jesus are going to look at key issues differently than you are. Some of those people who love Jesus are going to be of a different political bend than you are. 
Some of those people who love Jesus are going to be wrong about theological issues, and you know they're wrong because you used to believe what they believe. You do know how crazy it is to critique people who used to believe what you believe or believe what you used to believe. Say, Randy, if they're wrong about so much, how, how do I know that they're really born of God? Because politics aren't the litmus test. The science they decide to believe is not the litmus test. Belief is the litmus test. They believe, like you do, you got into the dance the same way they did. They claim the name of Jesus, and they muddle forward just like you are. And if they believe they are born of God, and if we are born of God, if belief, then love. Back to 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we are children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. If belief, then obedience. You thought if belief, then love was hard. If belief, then obedience. Like the bar just keep getting higher. He says, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Then he goes on to say, His commandments aren't even that hard. It's not that difficult. John is right here, and he's saying, if you profess that you love God, which you would do because you believed God, then where can we see your obedience to God? We've talked about this before. Humanity has this remarkable capability for cognitive dissonance of believing two things at one time who seem to be completely contrary. And we never really articulate it, but we manifest it, okay? And we can most easily see it by looking at our check register, for those of you that still keep a check register. Or for those who just check the bank app. Is there money? Yeah, there's money, okay? If you look at that, you can see your own cognitive dissonance. Membership to a gym and fast food, okay? Those things, like, you're believing two different things there. So we have this ability to believe two different things, and in the church we have an ability to believe completely different things. Like that we can love God and disregard His commandments. That we can love Jesus and disregard what Scripture tells us to do. For some people, they have no problem believing in Jesus as a historical figure, even as a spiritual leader. But when you start talking about the fact that he has a will for their life, and there are things that he wants them to do and not to do, then suddenly they get very prickly. Oh, wait, wait, I was in this for the love. Yeah, but if belief, yes, love. Then if belief, also obedience. John said in the Gospels that Jesus himself said in chapter 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If love, obedience. Now the commandments of Jesus in your life kind of fall into two broad categories. I would call them specific and general. He has a specific will for your life, things he wants you to do. They're not in the scripture, or they're written about in scripture in very broad terms, but they're very specific to your life. And some of the ways that he speaks to us specifically are through conviction or speaking through other people or, or just ideas that come to us. And he talks to us about specific things we want to do. Remember, as a believer, the door to this whole thing turns on the hinges of belief. But if you believe, you love, and then the door continues to turn and eventually you obey. If you are a believer, you should regularly be praying the prayer, Lord, what am I doing next? And how do you feel about it? Lord, what am I doing in my life and how do you feel about it? I find when I ask those questions with sincerity, he finds a way to answer me. 
If I literally say, Jesus, what do you think about this that I'm about to do? He finds a way of expressing what he thinks. If you really want to develop an ear for hearing God speak his specific will into your life, you have to be able to recognize that sometimes he says yes, and sometimes he says no. Some of you, the Lord has been saying no to, and you keep going back to your spouse going, he's just not speaking. (laughs) Yes, he is. He's saying no. And you've got to recognize that no as as much of a blessing as a yes is. Psalm 100 tells us to worship the Lord with gladness. Let me tell you, an easy way to worship the Lord with gladness is to be as grateful for his no's as you are for his yeses. Because they both come. We had a season a couple of months ago where like everything expensive in the house broke. Like it was weird. The, uh, the dryer broke, I think, first. And then the day we had that replaced, the washer broke. And about the time we got that replaced, the car died. Like this is always like bang, bang, bang. And uh, you can still get a washer dryer. Cars are a little bit hard to get right now. And so for about a week, I would go looking for a car. And, uh, you know, you start with real specific of what you want. And then when you realize they don't have those, you get broader and broader and broader. Finally, I was looking for a car anywhere. I'd come home and, and Kelsey go, did you find one? And I said, I remember one time saying, no, it's another day and we have yet to make a colossal mistake. Like that was my console. All right, Lord, you must be saying no. If you're saying no to this, now that I have to be as happy with the no as I am with the yes. You worship the Lord in gladness when you can accept both his yes and no for your specific life. Here's a checklist that I like to use when I run through what is the specific will of God for my life. Does it bring God glory or shame? That's something I really want to do. Okay, but how does the Lord feel about it? Does this bring him shame? That's probably not a specific will for your life. Does it bring me peace or anxiety? And I don't mean does it make me a little nervous, but I mean, honestly, does it bring me crippling anxiety or do I find peace there? Follow the peace. Does it encourage my growth or my laziness? You would not believe what some people are convinced is the will of God for their life just because it really is kind of the lazy thing to do. I'm in a season of hiddenness and we're just really not connecting anywhere with believers. That is not the will of God for your life. That's laziness. Then, finally, what about those who love me but do not have a dog in this fight? What do they think? Are there people that I can go to and say, what do you think here? You would think that the specific plant commandments of God for our life would be difficult and the general ones would be easy. Actually, it's the opposite. Once we're convinced that he's got our best interests at heart, the specific ones are easy. But on the general end, he circles right back around to loving one another. Matthew 22, starting 36. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. One of the greatest joys of of, uh, digital life or or knowing, meeting people online is you, you end up connecting with people you would never ever meet ever any other way. One of those people for me has been a pastor in uh, Rockwell, Texas, named Josh Howerton. I didn't realize it when I started kind of tracking with him, but Josh pastored a church in Nashville called The Bridge for years, and recently went to Rockwell, Texas, to a church called Lake Point, a large, historically very traditional Baptist church. 
And uh, recently, Josh called his church to an evening of prayer and worship. It's kind of a newish deal for them. But he preached on prayer and worship for them. And uh, they normally seat about 4,500 people in their auditorium. 6,000 people show up for a night of prayer and worship at this fairly traditional Baptist church. He posted pictures. 6,000 people, hands raised, tears streaming. It just moved my heart. But he said this recently. He said, people say, I wish my church would go deeper. But the vast majority of Christians are educated far beyond their level of obedience. They would, if you would just do what you already knew, your life would be changed. Friends, if belief, then love. If belief, then obedience. John goes on to say, if belief, then faith. If I asked a random sample of you, do you believe? Most of you would say, yeah, or ish, or I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, you would try and identify, yes, I believe, because belief in itself is a bit of a decision. We decide to believe what we believe. This is how I know this. You take the same news article, give it to your most conservative friend and your most liberal friend, they will have vastly different interpretations of that same article because they decided what to believe. We decide to believe. So belief is a decision, but if you ask the same group of people, are you a person of overcoming faith, fewer of them will say yes. Few hands will go up, but that sounds so much more dramatic, doesn't it? I can say I believe. Are you a person of strong faith? That's a harder one. But if you believe, you're born of God. And if you're born of God, you can justifiably expect to exercise overcoming faith. That's a part of the package. 1 John 5, 4, and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. If you have belief, you'll have overcoming faith. He said, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Congratulations, your deciding to believe unlocks a world of victory that you did not have access to do before you made that decision. And some of you don't even know you have it in you. I have a neighbor across the street who has a snowblower, and the dude is really into it, okay? You know what? Have you ever been in a mountain pass in the winter, and they've got those little flags to show you where the edge of the road is? You know, so when it, like, snows four feet that the guy driving the snowplow doesn't run off the road? My neighbor has these on the edge of his, of his uh, driveway, because he's got like a 24-inch Honda snowblower, and man, he does a job. Man. It is crisp. It is clean. It's, you know, but he is not going off into the grass. He does it really, really well. I do not have a snowblower. I have children. It's a trade-off, okay? Lots of things. You have kids you don't have. You don't have a snowblower. But what if I had a snowblower in my driveway or in my garage, but nobody bothered to tell me about it? What a tragedy, okay? To have access to something that you don't know about. If you believe you, you have the access to overcoming the world and a faith that follows belief is the natural development of being a follower of Jesus. If you believe, then love. If you believe, then you're obedient. If you believe, then you have access to faith. You're like, I don't have much. Jesus said it didn't take much. Jesus said, you got a little bit? You got the whole snowblower. Like, you got it. 
He said, you can move mountains with what little bit you have. Three quick faith builders. All right, some of you are going, I, I got a little bit, like my, I got like a four-inch snowblower. It would be easier to just wait till it melted. I have such little faith. Jesus said, yea, even who has a four-inch snowblower. It's not a direct quote, but it's more about mustard seed. But he doesn't care how little you have. But you can build what you have. You can build what you have through exposure to the word. I mean, one of these things going into this fast, let me encourage you, dial down media as much as possible and crank up your exposure to the word. It changes your life. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You hear it and it builds your faith. Jackman's, I was thinking of our friend Kelly McTiernan, who years ago went through a really difficult time. Didn't know how she was going to raise her kids, didn't know how life was going to work. And she said for about a year, she listened to the Bible on tape. Back when you remember tapes? Everywhere she went, it was like, Scripture set to music. It was James Earl Jones reads the Bible. It was any form of Scripture she could listen to. She said, that brought me such life in that very difficult season. You know what? Kelly raised those three kids to love the Lord and to honor their... I think she did a great job. She did it. Her faith was built out of exposure to the Word. Another thing that builds our faith is the idea of expressing thanksgiving. Colossians 2, 7 says, Rooted... And built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. People of faith are people of thanksgiving. Nothing changes the, your inner atmosphere like a grateful heart. Next time you feel beaten up or on the verge of destruction, make a list of the things you are grateful for and talk about those things out loud to yourself and to Jesus. The things that you are grateful for really matter and they put most of your difficulties in God's perspective and it will build your faith. The last thing I want to tell you about building faith is simply endurance. Enduring testing. People look at trials as things of, I can do that or I can't do that. I would say to you, you don't know what you can do. You really don't. They decide before trying, I'm going to be a success to that, or I'm going to go up in flames doing that. And they prophesy their own failure, and then they walk out their own prophecy. If you want to build faith, understand the long-term effect of short-term endurance. What it does to the human heart to hang on just a little bit longer. You may be barely making it, but if you make it today, that's another day you've made it. And if you make it a week... Anything you can do for a week, you can do for a long time. James 1.3 says, For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It actually strengthens you to endure just a little bit longer. The believer who immerses himself in the word, expresses thanksgiving, and endures one more day will build an inner life of overcoming faith that you just can't picture right now. If belief, then love. If belief, then obedience. If belief, then faith. He talks at length there about things like confidence and then life. But I just want to park it right there. I want to ask a phrase, we'll come back up. On this idea of if we believe, we can expect a measure of overcoming faith in our life. If you believe, you're like, 
Belief's a decision, but faith is a battle. Yeah, but if you believe, there's, there's a snowblower in the garage. All right, there is faith within you that you're not even aware of. I want to ask you to stand for a moment. Sometimes the best thing we can do to build our faith is actually to proclaim our belief and say, all right, Lord, if my belief comes with these things, then I'm going to lean into them. So we want to take a few minutes and go into worship and just proclaim our belief in who he is. Set your own situation on pause. It'll be there. But begin to proclaim who he is. And ask him to stir that faith. Lord, you said if I believe, I could love. You said if I could believe, I would obey. You said if I would believe, that there would be faith built up in me. So Father, we come to you and we ask that you would do in us what you say follows belief. We say yes to who you are. We profess your name. And now we want to lay hold of all of the things that come with that. In Jesus' name. Jesus, the name above every other name. Just begin to sing that to Jesus. Jesus, the only one who could ever sing. Yes, Lord.
morning, if you are in a position where you you need a level of faith you just feel like you don't have. Yes, I believe, but I'm I can even love and I can even obey, but that faith piece, there's something I'm facing, and honestly, I'm scared, or I feel weak. We want to pray for you this morning. You're in a season when you need, you just need supernatural faith. Right now, just raise your hand, right where you are. Right back there. Over here, Simon. Couple right here. Anybody else? Some of you are like, I don't have faith to raise my hand. Yeah, you do. You can do that. Deanna, up here, over here. Okay, if you are standing near someone like that with their hand raised and you feel comfortable, just reach out to them. Go stand near them, lay a hand on their shoulder. I bailed out on about four pages of notes just so we'd have time to do this, okay? Just begin to pray over them right now. Just let them hear you. This actually builds faith in the room. Jesus. of what comes with being a believer in Jesus. 
God bless you. If you prayed for somebody, find out their name. It is technically illegal to pray for people and not know their name. I just made that rule up, but it's a good way to get to know people. Have a great day. God bless you. You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. My name is Randy Bolander, and we had a great weekend with The Bridge at a pop-up location for Easter in beautiful Martin City. If you're not familiar with Martin City, if you had started listening to this podcast and you were driving from the west end of Martin City, by this point in the podcast, you're at the east end of Martin City. It's not very big, but it was a lot of fun and got to see a lot of you. That was a blast. We will be back at the Culture House on this coming Sunday. So that was a one-time location there in Martin City, but headed back to the Culture House. Uh, would love to see as many of you there as we could because uh, it's fun to be together. Of course, Easter, we taught on the resurrection. Who says that Jesus rose from the dead? And what did it mean in that time? And what does it mean to you now? Here we go from Sunday at the bridge. A couple of just housekeeping things really quickly. If you would like to give, you can do that on the church website or there is a big orange bucket in the back that we use for offering that says Home Depot because we can go fancy places, but we still can't have nice things. We still have a Home Depot bucket for our offering. It's just who we are. Uh, It's not the weirdest thing about us. It really isn't. It just isn't. Also, if you live in the Grandview area and you heard yelling last night, I can explain. It was not me. It was Sally and Tyler because Sally and Tyler are engaged. Stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. So so they are engaged. If you're keeping score, they are our second engaged couple. If you're single, so there's hope here, okay? We're 2-0. and oh. However, we haven't gotten anybody to the altar yet, so it's a race now between the two couples, and I may incentivize that somehow to see, I don't know, what I might do. Some kind of prize for the first couple or mocking the second. I don't know what we'll do. We'll think of something. We'll think of a way to make it fun, okay? We'll make it fun. Thank you to everybody who helped out with our Seder meal on Friday. How many of you were there? What a great time that was. So much fun. Great to celebrate with your families. You know what caused me to realize that it was just a glorious event? We got home at 10 after 10 that night. Like I knew it was like revival for me to get home that early. It felt so good. But thank you all for helping so much. You're, you're awesome. Uh, for those of you who have walked out our 40-day fast with us, thank you for doing with that. Of course, you get to the end of the fast and you all look at each other and say, so what did the Lord do, Right? And uh, we're still learning. There are things that, that the Lord unfolds over time. This I know. The Lord understands sacrifice and he honors sacrifice. So if you are fasting specifically for something and you did not see that come to fruition, don't let go. 
Okay, the Lord honors your sacrifice and he saw that. So let's just take a minute. I want to pray specifically for those who were believing for something and you just haven't seen it yet. Doesn't mean it's over. God's timing is God's timing, but he honors sacrifice. So Father, we thank you for this season of fasting. We thank you that we can set aside days and deny ourselves so that we could feast on you. And for those that were hanging on to specific things that have not seen them come to fruition, Lord, I pray for patience and I pray that your hand would move. For those that are fasting and praying for healing or the salvation of friends or even as we fast and pray for space for us to meet on a Sunday morning, Lord, in your timing, we say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Easter Sunday, obviously, we're going to talk about the resurrection today. One of the most recognized events, obviously, of Jesus' life, certainly the one that impacts our lives the most. You say, how do you look at the life of Jesus and determine what impacts your life the most? What was the most important event of his life? Everything he did mattered that we know of. Now, there were 30 years where we really don't know much about him, and it'd be fascinating to know what went on during those years, but everything that we have written down about him, it all matters. The healings matter. His compassion matters. His prayer life matters. But his resurrection changed everything. It took something that was eternally true, And it's like it suddenly make it real in time and space for all of us. It's like the light flipped on and we all were suddenly able to see something that had been true about him from the beginning. He is the resurrection and the life. Now, his close followers, when this happened, didn't quite know what to think. Thomas actually said, you know... Unless I can touch his wounds, I don't know if I can even believe this. Yes, I saw other things he did. I saw him heal people. I even saw him raise other people from the dead. But how do you raise yourself from the dead? Like, what are the mechanics of that? You lay hands on yourself? How does that work? Jesus spoke of his own resurrection and the telescoping influence that it would have over all of us And he spoke of it at the most unusual time, at the death of a friend. He's standing, talking to Lazarus' sister. Lazarus is still dead. What an unusual time to make an announcement about yourself being the resurrection. I know your brother's dead, but did you know that I'm the resurrection and the life? He said it then, but his, because his coming resurrection didn't matter just to him, it mattered to her and to Lazarus and to everyone who would die after that. With the man still dead, Jesus told the dead man's sister in John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he shall die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her this crazy question. Do you believe this? It's like, do you believe what I just told you? I'm the resurrection and the, and the life. Do you believe this? I think it's so intriguing that he prodded her a little bit. Why did it matter to him if she believed it? Was he looking for affirmation? Was it like Jesus kind of feeling bad about himself that day and needed somebody to pat him on the back? No, 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 no. He knew if she believed this about him, it changed everything for her. 
Why does it matter that we believe it? This morning, I want to ask you the question that he asked this woman. Do you believe it? And the secondary question is, if you believe it, why do you believe it? We did this thing last week. We're going to maybe continue this for a while. Is I give you a cheat code to the sermon. Okay, for those of you with short attention spans, or uh, maybe your mom asked you a lot of questions over Sunday dinner, if you get the cheat code down, you know what we preached about, okay? This is the cheat code for today. We're going to explore the evidence of the resurrection. We're going to ask if it is true, what did it mean in the moment? And then we're going to ask if it's true, what does it mean in this moment? You know that I'm a history buff, okay? I'm just, I can just go down a wormhole on history. I'm so interested in things like this. But it's only really useful if it's applicable to our current day. And the resurrection impacts our life and the life of every human being. But what evidence do we have of it other than our grandma told us about it, right? Some of you believe in the resurrection because your grandma told you about it. You don't even think about the fact that grandma thought the moon landing was faked, you know, or, or was afraid to set up her fingerprint reader on her iPhone because that's how they get you. You know, there are things about grandma that maybe you didn't agree with, but why do you believe the resurrection? Are there more responsible or perhaps more knowledgeable resources about the resurrection that you could possibly believe? If we say he lives, who else says it and why? Let's look for a minute at the historical record. The historical record hinges on sources. It's all we have. Who said these things? We can't go back in time, so we read what has been written. If I hear my aunt talk about my great-grandmother, I can believe some of what she says, but if I find my great-grandmother's diaries, those diaries are a better source. Do you understand what I'm saying? So is the biblical account of the resurrection accurate? Based on source reliability... I believe that it is. In fact, though people that doubt the record of the Bible aren't really so much have a bias against scholarship, they've got a bias against Jesus. Hear me out. People question the accuracy of the biblical record, but think of it as if it were any other story from history. 350 years before Jesus was born, another baby was born. For the first 16 years of his life, he was tutored by Aristotle. By the age of 30, he created one of the largest empires the world had ever known. He conquered the entire world as he knew it and sat down at 30 years old and wept because there was nothing more to conquer. Some of you recognize this story. You know who this is. This is Alexander the Great. In modern-day Thessalonica, there's a statue to Alexander the Great. He is astride this massive black horse that history tells us about called Bocephalus. No one questions the existence of Alexander the Great or Bocephalus. If you were to go to a college history course and stand up when they taught about Alexander the Great and say, I don't believe in Alexander. I don't think he was that great. I think he was like Larry, the normal. And I definitely don't believe in the horse. They would laugh you out of that building. But did you know the source record for Alexander the Great? We have no written record of him until 300 years after he was dead. 
We don't have any reputable written record of him until 400 years after he was dead. But why doubt Jesus? We have written records that were transcribed from 10 years after his death. We have entire books and anthologies from 20 to 70 years after his death. Some of you are thinking, well, 20 years is a long time. Did people really remember 20 years and get it accurate? If you're over 35, you know exactly where you were on September 11th, 2001. You know that. Like hard-boiled into your brain. Why? Because when events like this happen, we remember them. Yes, the historical record is accurate. If you doubt that Jesus was who he claimed to be, then surely you don't believe all this malarkey about Alexander the Great. Because that's completely unreliable. We don't just rely on a written record, though. We also rely on eyewitness accounts. If something as crazy as the resurrection happened, surely somebody saw it, and what did they say? There are multiple instances of people not just hearing about it, but seeing it and testifying to it. Jump forward from the resurrection, 25 years probably, and Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And he tells them in chapter 15, three to eight, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Truth is, probably to a thousand people. They would not have counted the women at the time. And he goes on to say, most of whom are alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, to as one untimely born, he also appeared physically to me. His key points here, Christ, the lamb, was sacrificed for all of us. There are multiple eyewitnesses, 500 men, and he says, go ask them. They're still alive. Finally, he says, I saw, them, saw him myself on the road from Damascus. Now, with the passage of time, we have lost our idea of the impact of these eyewitnesses. But if you look at the New Testament, every book in the New Testament was either written by somebody who was an eyewitness to the resurrection or was someone who was mentored by someone who was an eyewitness. 2 Peter 1.16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him. You're not talking to somebody who heard it from grandma. You're not talking to somebody who heard it from someone five generations down. No, no, no. He said, we saw him. You might believe that 500 people all got together and decided to fake this, but you've really got to be into conspiracies. Jesus' resurrection wasn't just verified by those who were predisposed to believe him. There were even those in secular sources who testified to his resurrection. In the first century, information flowed a lot more slowly, obviously, than it does. Today, it flows fast. This sermon is bad. You can text somebody in the middle of it and say, don't bother, okay? If you're late, stay late. Information flows fast, but because it flows fast, sometimes it's not accurate and the sermon might get better and you might have told somebody to stay and they, oh, well, maybe you should have came. Fast doesn't always mean better or more accurate. We've all seen in the news, breaking news means goose egg. Like you, like you just don't know what that means. Things were slower in the first century and that slowness tended towards accuracy 
and it tended towards even those out emotional attachment to the story of Jesus to testifying of his death and resurrection. For instance, Tacitus, the best known Roman historian of all time, wrote extensively about the crucifixion of Jesus and how unfair that it was. Often the most common trusted secular sources of the day who didn't really know what to make of Jesus when he was alive wrote about his resurrection with a great admiration. Josephus was a Jewish non-believer who was a slave in the emperor's house. He eventually was released from slavery, took the emperor's name, and was treated as a son. And he is the greatest authority on first century Jewish life. And he, as a non-believer, wrote this about Jesus and Christians. Listen to this. He said, now there was about this time a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. Again, this is a secular historian writing. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them again alive on the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold, and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. Can we just admit that when the church talks about itself, we are sometimes given to a little bit of hype, right? I've said it before, best source of fiction anywhere, church websites. For real. It's like, you know, dynamic teaching. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's okay. But we tend to talk about ourselves in glowing terms, but how do those who don't believe talk about us? In this case, a man who did not necessarily believe still testified to the resurrection of Jesus. If Josephus only knew that 2,000 years later, that tribe of Christians would still not be extinct. We've got the historical record, we've got eyewitness accounts, we've got the secular record, and then we have an extraordinarily honest account of the resurrection in scripture itself. We all know that people tend to tell stories in a way that makes them look good. Or we tend to tell stories in a way to make them more believable. But in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have one common thread, all four of them mention that the first people to realize that the resurrection had taken place were women. That would have never been done if they were trying to prove a point in a strong way. Women were not allowed to testify in court because they were considered too emotional to be responsible witnesses. So they you know, gave them low-pressure jobs like raising children and things like that. <laughs> too emotional. So when the Gospels tell the story of the resurrection and it just so happens that women discovered it would have been easy if you were trying to prove a point to say, you know, some of the believers. But no, 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 no. They all align with John chapter 21 and 2. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple 
And the one who Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid them. All the gospels agree. Women did it. If you were trying to make up a story that would be accepted by the general public, you wouldn't have told it this way. But they were so committed and shocked by the truth. They're like, no, 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 no. Win for the ladies. We've got to, we've got to tell the story correctly because they're going to be telling it for the rest of all eternity. Finally, just one of the last logical reasons we believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection is the lack of any legitimate public protest. If you were a Roman official and you had crucified Jesus and now they're saying he's not in the tomb, what would you do? Just go open the tomb and drag him out. Like, let's go show them. Instead, they offered excuses for why the tomb was actually empty. They said the disciples took the body. And even that was fabricated on the spot. Matthew 28, 11 to 13. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests that all had taken place. And when they'd assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a significant sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people the disciples came by night and stole him away while we were still asleep. When your only defense demands bribe money to keep the story straight, you don't have much of a defense. So we've got the historical record. We've got eyewitnesses. We've got the fact that they told the story as women finding him. We have this idea that they had to fabricate stories to cover where the body of Jesus was. Jesus wasn't just missing. Jesus was alive. And to understand the power of the resurrection, you've got to understand then, okay, what did this mean in that moment? What happened because Jesus was alive? What were the ripples in the pond of history when that stone struck the surface of the water? What were the effects? The events leading up to the death of Jesus and the three days that he were in the grave were hard on morale, (laughs) to say the least. Judas, one of the 12 who had betrayed him, went out and hung himself. Peter, the most outspoken of all of the disciples, the one quickest to defend Jesus, the one who would take a sword to a prayer meeting and cut off an ear, denies him. Like, it was a bad day for the team, okay? Not their shining moment. And it's obvious by reading what happens when Jesus finally does appear that they are not emotionally in a, self, in a, in a really good spot. They're petrified. You know, if you leave your kids at home when, when they're younger and it's just, you know, you're getting that, that point where do you leave them or not? And okay, we leave them. And when you walk in after having left them, those first five seconds reveal volumes, right? It's like you don't know what you're going to walk into, and you kind of walk in fast and assess the room, see if anything's on fire, see if anybody's standing on a table. You know, it's just immediately you know what's going on. This kind of thing happened twice to Jesus, where he appears on the scene, and it revealed the nature of how the disciples were doing. Luke 24, 21 says, they're they're walking on the road and they don't recognize Jesus for whatever reason. They don't recognize him. And he's talking with them and they tell him, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And yes, and beside all this, it's been three days since all this happened. The disciples themselves are telling Jesus, yeah, that didn't go the way we thought it was going to go. Can you imagine Jesus hearing this? Like, he's alive, and they're going, yeah, I guess we're just going to go back to fishing. 
Then in John 20, 19, it says on the evening of that day, on the first day of the week, the doors were being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So here we are three days after the crucifixion and the disciples are not doing well. They are officially freaking out. We've given three years to this man. Now he's been dead three days. What do we do? What happens to this fearful, betrayed, scared group of young men when they learn the truth of the resurrection? Suddenly, these group, this group of people becomes fundamentally different. Like they become so bold with the idea of Jesus is alive. And you're like, how did you become so bold? Just a minute ago, you were hiding. Yeah, but he's alive now. And because he's alive, I'm not afraid of anything anymore. I'm not even afraid of death. And if you look at the history of those disciples, almost every one of them were martyred. They gave their life. The same disciples that hid behind locked doors were ready to give their life for Jesus. Only a resurrection makes a human being that bold. Peter and Paul served the Lord until they were martyred by the emperor. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified. He's like, they have any last requests? Yeah, can you crucify me upside down? My savior was crucified normal. I'm not, I'm not worthy of that. Andrew preached his way through Turkey and was crucified. Thomas, the doubter, the one that publicly went on record and said, I don't believe, became such a fervent believer that he preached in India and eventually his body was punctured by the spears of four soldiers who couldn't get him to stop preaching any other way. Philip was the one who converted the wife of a Roman proconsul who in turn murdered him for it. Matthew died a violent death. Bartholomew traveled the world and was martyred. James was clubbed to death for his faith. Simon was martyred in Persia when he refused to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias replaced Judas and was later burned to death. The only disciple that wasn't physically martyred was John, who was allowed to die of old age, although history says at one point was put in a cauldron of boiling oil and unaffected. All of them were persecuted. Most of them were martyred as a result of their belief what, that Jesus was a good guy? No, 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 no. That he had risen from the dead. Who takes a spear or is burned at the stake to continue a charade? It's not like the disciples got together and said, let's just say he rose from the dead. No, no, no. You don't get martyrs out of that. Those things don't happen for people who are dead and gone. No one lays their life down knowingly for a fraud. To understand the power of the resurrection, you gotta know who says it, and what did it mean to those in the time? And then to experience the power of the resurrection, you have to ask, okay, what does it mean for my life? If it's, okay, all the historical record, all of that agrees, yes, yes, and okay, it really inspired these 11 guys, and they added the 12th, and they went out and they died for it, but what does it mean for me? Like I said before, history is interesting, but it's only useful if it can be applied. Jesus is not content to be interesting to you. Okay? Jesus is not happy if you're just slightly intrigued with the story and like the music. He does not want to be something that just holds your interest for a while. We have spent 30 years in America in a consumer mentality when it comes to church. Okay? Where we shop 
for a church. We find one that fits our needs. We plug in. And I understand. We like things. There are certain things that we need. But the mentality of consumer Christianity has not served the church and it has not served believers. I know a young man that decided to spend 52 weeks, one entire year, visiting a different church every week. Doesn't that sound miserable? I'm sorry. That just sounds like a nightmare. 52 weeks of where's the bathroom? It's on the stage? What? You know, it's like 52 weeks of something weird in every building. And write a review of the church. By a month in, I was watching a critical spirit begin to develop. And by the end of that year, he didn't even know if he believed in Jesus anymore. Because that consumer mentality doesn't just project itself onto a congregation, it projects itself onto Jesus. And they start thinking about, well, you know, I'm interested in him. He's not looking for your interest. He's not looking to hold you captive for a little while. No, no, he's looking for a relationship with you. He wants to give you more than warm fuzzies. He wants to give you life forever. He wants more than your interest. He wants your heart. He desires a relationship. He wants to give you new life, new hope, new vision, freedom. Some of you are listening to me going, well, that would make me like an entirely new person. Yeah. Yeah. Your family's more excited about that than you are. But it's true. He wants to fundamentally change who you are because we are in desperate need of becoming people other than the ones we were at birth. You've heard of the phrase, they were born to win. Nobody was born to win. We were all born losers. The deck is stacked against us with the sins of generations and then the ones we create on our own. Somebody said, I'm not really concerned about original sin with being born with it. I've came up with a few on my own. We desperately need a way forward that is more than just a good church service and people who we feel comfortable with. We do not need to be our best natural selves. We've got to become what we can only become through a man who died and conquered death and rose again. Romans 6, 4 says, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk, walk, live, extend in newness of life. The one who claimed to be the resurrection and the life said, I want to take you with me. And I want to take you to victory. I want to ask if Rachel would come back up for a moment and then the worship team. I am 54 and I am noticing a trend. The tr- well, one being, when you get to 55, you can't even pretend anymore. You're halfway between 50 and 60. There's just like, even a young 55 is still halfway to 60. It's math. But the other thing I have noticed is that people that are coming to the end of their days seem closer to my age than they were. I listened to a uh, podcast this week about hospice workers. And the thing that caught my ear is that most of their patients were in my age. I have lived a lot of my years hoping to do things and I still will do more things. But I'm realizing there are things in my heart that I just probably will not get to. Without new life, what hope do we have? He says, 
there are things in your heart that I know you want to do, but you know what? This life that you're living is not the only life you'll get. In fact, you're going to live forever with me. And you have destiny. Some of you, hear me, some of you who are 70, 80 years old, you have destiny and you have purpose and you have tasks and things that will please the Lord yet to do. And even the end of life doesn't mean it. Why? Because he rose from the dead. He's alive. In Titus 1, Paul writes about the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. His desire for you to live forever is not plan B. He's not behind the stage wiring wires together to make this plan work. No, his, his plan forever was to live with you for eternity. Stand with me if you would. We're just going to go into worship and close out our morning. But I ask if everyone would bow your head for a moment. This morning, as I talked about life and death and resurrection,